by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. go to church here when I had I'd lived in uh, uh, Nashville area and then then in Jackson Tennessee and also in Selmer Tennessee and when I came back to Memphis Tennessee my little brother Van Roseberry was going to church here and uh, was telling me all about it and invited me to, uh, to come over here I tried visiting different places but I just really wanted to go to church with my little brother and uh, so it was uh, really important to me just to kind of reconnect with my family and all and uh, and so I came to church here and uh, and went to church here really the best part of a year. It was quite a drive from where I lived, and I eventually found a church home on the other side of Memphis. I lived in downtown Memphis, and that's when I, um, I, I became part of a church plant downtown there. But I just want to let you guys know I went to church here, uh, been in this very building, and uh, was here, and uh, no guy, and many of you members here. And uh, I'm a little bit different when it comes to being a speaker and being a missionary. It's one of the things I know a lot of people do, and there's a lot of very important people that will come and talk to you. And a lot of times in, the, uh, in our churches today, people want you to know that they're very anointed and they're very special and they, and they come from a very uh, special place. And what my message is is very, very different. What I want you to understand is there's absolutely nothing special about me and this isn't some kind of oh god so great and i'm nothing no 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 you don't get it is that uh, i grew up here i grew up in south haven i was a very average student uh i'm um uh, obviously i'm not handsome i'm not tall uh not particularly gifted or anything uh i actually i live in a culture where we honor old age you know when i lived over here i shaved my head and beard because i'd become all gray-headed and you know you want to look young in america you know the whole idea is you want to look younger than you are so i live in a culture where being old uh and looking old and particularly with a with a beard like mine and everything it's quite short now compared to the way i usually wear it uh is you can have a place of honor within the culture because i I work in some areas where there's some radical muslims and it it helps out a little bit i jokingly tell people a long beard is like your superman cape when you uh when you get around radical muslims because there's an immediate respect and everything that you get because uh, I know this sounds crazy, but in the um, Islamic culture, they would, uh, you know, if you notice and look around the room, you'll see that our women don't have beards. And so this makes things very simple for Muslims, you know, particularly in the more um, uh, uh, fundamentalist cultures, is that uh, they, and men, uh, when they don't shave, have beards. And so they literally say, why do you want to look like a woman? And so in a lot of cultures where you go where there's real strong uh, Islamic um, uh, influence in the culture, that literally it's as strange for them for you to shave your chin and beard as it would be here if a man came to church in a dress. Like a cross-dresser, you'd think, oh, man, 
what have we got here? Well, when we go around with a shaven face, you know, we get the same thing. So, so anyway, but uh, that's the reason I, uh, I have the beard and all there. Of course, in our culture, it's, those things don't matter, but they're very important over there. So anyway, the one thing I wanted to communicate with you guys here is, is that there's absolutely nothing special about me, and at the same time, uh, I came to some conclusions that have changed my life, uh, but I want you to know kind of before I get started here is that we have a tendency to, you know, we want to put a missionary up on a pedestal, and, and what, what happens when we do that is, is that I can't do what he's doing because he's special. I'm not like him. I don't know if you remember the first time you ever heard a, a missionary speak, but as he, I remember being a young Christian, and there was this guy that had gone to Africa and another guy that was in Russia before the wall came down, and another guy was in South America. And, you know, I was almost, and they would stand up and just preach a sermon, and then they would, you know, they'd tell us how to give to their minister and everything. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can hear a sermon anytime. What in the world would possess you? to give up everything that we have over here and go in another culture and, 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 and go and want to share with these people. That's what always intrigued me. I never wanted to. I could care less that he was going to tell me Jesus loved me again because I already knew that. And I didn't want to hear a regular sermon. I wanted to hear what's going on that you would do this. And so what I want to do with you today is give you just a little bit of that. And then I want to also share with you some things I believe God's laid on my heart to share with you guys specifically and everything. Because, you know, everybody wants to know all about Africa and they want to know how you got there and why you're there and all this kind of stuff. And so I actually told you guys that in length three years ago, but I can tell that some of you have been here since then and others probably tired of hearing me talk about, particularly if you follow me on Facebook and things like that. So let me just give you a little synopsis. Uh, I want to let you know I was born in, uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. My parents live in Olive Branch. My family basically is here in DeSoto County. Uh, I had uh, been, a young, been a guy that was really kind of career-oriented like most of us are. Most of us men tend to identify by our career and what we do. At the time that I, I went through this transition in my life from being what I call a traditional Christian, that's a person that self-identifies by their career, that they believe the fulfillment of their um, uh, kind of mission in life is to be in church, read the Bible, and pray, do the best they can, and at the same time, uh, kind of wondering what God's will is and what am I supposed to do with myself while we work and do the things that we, we do in normal day-to-day -day life. And, uh, and so I, I had, uh, uh, was publishing magazines here in Memphis. I had three magazines I published all the time, and then I helped a, a lady that owned a chain of black beauty salons do some magazine advertising for her. That was her magazine, but we just published it for her. We, uh, uh, I had a little restaurant on Mud Island that was more of a kind of a coffee shop pastry kind of thing. And then I had a couple other businesses. I don't know if you, you guys remember Service Master. They got the big thing downtown. Well, we did all their service-related calls all over the United States for all their divisions. You know, they got Terminex and Service Master, and there's, I can't remember, Mayor Shield or something, the home, and, uh, home appliance protecting people. Anyway, they have offices all over the country. Terminex had over 800, and so we took care of all their telecom needs as well as any IT problems that required a physical visit. So we had a bunch of guys going around doing that. And then we also had a, um, an executive placement service where we helped uh, professionals that were no longer in their field, you know, these rich bank guys that maybe retired from being a banker and had their golden parachute, 
but then decided when they got my age they didn't want to be retired. They wanted to get out and work again. So we showed these guys how to kind of get back in the workplace. So that kind of gives you an idea of what all that I did. And, yeah, I did all those things at the same time. So I was very career-focused and all that stuff. But I went through a transition period where my, my particular pastor was, had been a missionary and was very gifted at leading people to Christ. And we had a Bible study that met in my home in downtown Memphis. And I literally went out and invited my neighbors to the Bible study, and surprise, surprise, some of them came. And we, uh, we literally led people to Jesus in this home Bible study. And we were a new house plant, and, and actually, I was actually the first uh, official member of that house plant. Uh, I actually found out there were people there before me, but nobody bothered to pull the trigger on actually joining. So I got to be the first member of that church in the whole wide world, and uh, I was also the first missionary that was uh, sent out of there as well. But anyway, so I, uh, I, I'd watched my pastor, uh, who was just extremely gifted and just comfortable, Telling everybody about Jesus. I mean, I'll never forget. I went to a grocery store one time. We're getting ready to cook out. And I'm like running over here to get the, the potato chips and, uh, and the vegetables. And, and uh, no, I'm sorry, and the meat. And he's running back here to get, check on the vegetables. And so I'm up and I'm like, where's Jeff at? I'm at the register. You know, I'm ready to pay. We're going to go home. Everybody's going to cook out. And he comes up and he says, hey, man, I'm not going to be able to go with you now to cook out. He says, you see that guy back there? And he points back to this guy that I knew very well because this grocery store is in my area. He said, he wants me, he's going to go on break in 30 minutes, and he wants to learn about Jesus. And I almost dropped all my vegetables because they go, him? I said, first of all, every other word out of this guy's mouth was a curse word. All he did was stand in the back and leer at all the pretty girls. In fact, he'd gotten in trouble for making lewd comments on multiple occasions to ladies that just came in the store. I mean, this guy was a mess. He was a train wreck. You know, he was always sneaking out back, smoking a cigarette when he's supposed to be working. And, and like I said, he was just foul-mouthed, just really not a likable person. And Jeff had gone back there. And he'd been gone five minutes and came back, and this guy wants to talk about Jesus. Turns out he'd met somebody, fallen in love, and they were going to get married, and he realized that the way he was and the way he was in his life, that he'd mess it up. He just messed everything up, he said. And somehow, I don't know what Jeff said, he talked to this guy, and he wanted to hear about Jesus. And I just couldn't believe it. I would have no more wasted my time trying to share with that guy than the man on the moon. And this guy, you know, here he is. My pastor's back there, and we don't get to cook out. He's two hours late because he's telling this guy about Jesus. Well, you know, I was just like, how does somebody do that? I remember being a young Christian at 16 years old. I told everybody about Jesus. I was so, it was new, and it was exciting, and it was fresh. And I led people to Jesus when I was 16 years old. And I had fallen away from God and returned as an adult. I was in my 40s now. And, man, I... I I loved Jesus, and I was at church all the time, and I read my Bible, and I prayed, and, and I was a good giver in my church, and all these things that make you a good American Christian, but I, had, I couldn't even remember the last time I had told someone about Jesus and led somebody to the Lord, and so I was, I, you know, have you ever heard the saying that sometimes somebody reminds you of a place you've never been? How <laughs> it's like that. Jeff reminded me of something that I, I, I no longer experience. And what that was is that I remember loving Jesus so much. 
I remember telling people about Jesus and being so excited about Jesus that I was leading people to Jesus. But I must tell you, I was 16 years old, and then all of a sudden, I'm 44. Hadn't done it in so long. So anyway, I, uh, uh, I asked Jeff to show me. And, you know, he showed me, you know, being a good Southern Baptist, you know, he had this method. Well, you know, you say this. And, hey, man, how, how many of you in here have ever been through evangelism explosion classes? Yep, yep. Well, you know, you, what would you do if right now today you were to stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? By the way, a verse that's never in the Bible anywhere, but that's our lead question, you know. And, uh, but that's how we were taught. It was a starting point kind of deal. And, and so I, I, I learned how to share my faith in a very methodical and kind of a mechanical way. But, it's, hey, listen, any way you start's a good way. Because I began to share, and then as time went on, I, God began to speak to me and lead to me about some things. But I know this sounds crazy, but I went from this guy that was all about my career and identifying as a person that was a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, uh, and, and, and all about money kind of thing, to where as I went out and began to share my faith and lead people to Christ, all of a sudden, uh, I began to change. Uh, I, I never will forget, I, I used to be a big Memphis Tiger fan, and I went to, uh, I had just gone to this uh, ministry, y'all may have never even heard of it, it's called Impact Ministry, but anyway, it's up in Frazier, where I did almost all my ministry, by the way, and I was up there in Frazier, and I was sharing um, with people, and they would, had this grocery program where they'd pass out groceries, and you, people would come in to get free groceries, they had to have, you know, meet certain economic requirements. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that back then, the two poorest zip codes in America that were not on an Indian reservation were in Frazier. And so anyway, so we were giving away food up there, and uh, so we had an opportunity to share with people uh, about the Lord while they were waiting on the groceries because, you know, we had so many people come. It could take an hour or two to get your groceries. You had to come sign in, you know, to get them. So we'd tell people about Jesus, and so I went and began to tell people about Jesus. And I'm, I know this sounds crazy to you, but in less than 18 months, I'd prayed with 276 people to come to know Jesus. Uh, I never will forget one day I, had, uh, I asked him if we, I told him, I said, you know, we're really good at leading people to come to Jesus, but we're really lousy at making disciples. I mean, what's happening to these people once they leave? Well, we recommend that they, they find them a church. And I'm like, you know, it's funny what we do. I, I have a saying sometimes I can be a smart aleck and somebody will say something. And, and my first response kind of is uh, you quote it back to them. You say things Jesus has never said. You lead somebody to Jesus, send them, and lead somebody to the Lord, and then send them out to go find a church. Those are words Jesus never said. You know, he never said do that. He said make disciples. And so I went to the leadership of that ministry and asked if we could do it. And he says, what do you mean? And I said, no, I want to get a group, and I want to begin teaching them to obey the commands of Jesus, and I want to grow them up in the Lord and teach them how to share their faith. And they said, you can't do that. And he said, why? And he said, well, this is a very violent neighborhood, and it's very bad, and you would have to spend time up here. You know, we had a bunch of people running into Frazier, and they'd share their faith, and then they'd run back out to Collierville. I mean, that's basically what they were doing. And so I came, and I said, no, you don't understand. I want to be in Frazier, and I want to lead these guys. To, I want to find people that really want to come and follow Jesus, and I'm willing to invest my life to, to um uh, to disciple them. And the guy that led the ministry said, as long as you don't ever come here at night, that'll be okay. And I said, you can't disciple them in the daytime. They're at work. We have to come at night. So you'll be killed. 
And I said, look, can I disciple them or not? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, but you can only disciple men. You can't call women. I said, okay, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. And so anyway, so I got on the phone, and I, out of the 240-something people I had led to the Lord, I began calling people, and I realized, uh, first of all, 90% of them's phone never worked anymore because, you know, it was back when we did the, the free phone thing. You know, the government was giving away the phones, and so everybody had three or four phones because each one only had like 20 minutes on it. And so everybody was switching, swapping phones. They were free, so every time a new phone would come out, everybody would and switch. So it took me forever to find some people, but I finally found 25 or 30 guys that said they would come, and then I found out that uh, uh, only about 12 of them were really serious, and I began discipling them, and as it turned out, every guy that I began to disciple was a guy that had been in prison for a violent crime. I had one guy named Old Joe, and he had bullet holes, like where you could see, and they'd been sewed up and healed. Um, but anyway, so these were the guys that I had begun to share with. I, I, I'll share one last experience, and then I'm going to move on. We had, uh, I came out of there from leading a lady named Juanita who was 70-something years old, and I came out of the, the facility there, and it was almost Thanksgiving, so we'd given them like a crazy amount of food and turkeys and all these things. So we, she was sitting there with her bags. Everyone else was gone. And I said, Juanita, what are you doing here? Now, she was 70 years old, and we just prayed together to receive the Lord. I was excited. She was still the afterglow, you know, of knowing she was forgiven and that God loved her and that she was going to follow him. I was so happy to see her, but what is she doing here with her groceries all by herself? I mean, I can't remember. Seven or eight bags of groceries. We just really went nuts this Thanksgiving, you know. I'm trying to bless these people. And she said, well, you know, y'all gave us so much food. And I stayed in there and prayed with you so long that my rides left, and they all turned their phones off because they don't want to come back. She said, I live six, seven miles from here. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I says, well, why don't you? you got someone else you can call because these groceries are going to melt. We had frozen turkeys and hams in there and stuff. It was a good deal. And so anyway, she says, no. And I thought, I'll take you home. There was only one problem is, is that, me, Glenn Roseberry, who was now discipling these guys and doing all this stuff, was still very involved in my businesses and everything. And so uh, I had, in my heart, God had changed me, but in my lifestyle, I was lagging behind. And so what I found myself happening was I realized when I told her I would take her home was is that I was in my Porsche. I was in my mid-engine Porsche convertible. And so when I went to go pick her up, there was two seats. And there was a little trunk about this big in the back. And then we had a little thing in the front you would open up because it was mid-engine. It was great for two little bitty bags. Anybody play golf? The little, you know, kind of the nine-hole little, you know, you got the little bag that only holds a few clubs. And that's what it was made for. So we, we put the top down, and Juanita got in. I put two or three bags in her lap, and I put two or three bags in the front boot and shut it down. We emptied the groceries in the back boots, and we spread the you know, the, the cans around, and we shut the thing, and then I got in the lap with my um, bags, and here we go down the road, you know, and then we go right into the hood, and I couldn't help but think, here I am riding around, and I'm thinking, Porsche, there is no substitute. You know, whoop, whoop, you know, here I'm calling groceries for one of these. So anyway, we go to her house, and we go in, and we put her groceries up, and we had a glass of tea and just fellowship and sat on her front porch and enjoyed ourselves. We got, I got out in my car, and I drove to the stop sign, and I stopped, and I began to cry 
because what I had come to the realization was is that this car, which was my dream car, which I always wanted, it was kind of the American dream thing for me. I knew that if I could ever afford a mid-engine Porsche, I had to be black, by the way, a black Porsche and live in a certain place and making a certain amount of money that I would have arrived at the American dream. And what I realized when I pulled up to the stop sign, stop sign was, is this has got to be the stupidest car I'd ever owned in my life. Because what had happened was it was the perfect car for the American dream and the worst car for a dream for the kingdom of God. You see, I couldn't even carry two widows home that were in need, yet God said true religion is to help and to come to the aid of the widows and the orphans in their time of need. I had so structured my life to pursue and be successful in the American dream that I had almost disqualified myself from being usable for the kingdom of God. You can't work 100 hours a week running seven businesses and make disciples. Did you know that? It's impossible. But see, I went from self-identifying as an entrepreneur to realizing that God never called anyone to be a doctor or a lawyer or an entrepreneur. God called men and women to be disciples and to make disciples. If you're not a disciple, you're something God never called men to be and never sent the apostles out to make. You're something else, and if you feel like you don't understand in the Christian life and you don't know how you relate and you don't know what you're supposed to do and you're seeking God's will, seek it no more. He called you to be a disciple, and disciples make disciples because when you make a disciple, the Bible says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and guess what Jesus commanded them to do? Go make disciples. You may think you're a teacher. You may think you're a welder. You may think you're a, a student. But I'm here to tell you, God called you to be a disciple, and disciples make disciples. If you're not disciple-making, you're not a loyal and true disciple to Jesus. I train widows that can't read and write in Africa to tell people about Jesus bring them into the kingdom of God and to begin discipling them. Everyone that is a disciple has a responsibility to make disciples. We live in a gender-separate society, and so we train our men to make disciples out of men and our women to make disciples out of women. We have a very specific ministry for our men and women, and we try to equip all the saints for the work of the ministry. We make a big mistake here in America where we want to separate into somehow classes of Christians. I find it remarkable that Paul told Christians in a conversation, oh, you can all prophesy. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought that was the guy with the long beard and the staff and lived out in a cave somewhere and gave an, an occasional prophetic utterance about the future. But Jesus said, no, you can all prophesy. He says, matter of fact, I need you to seek all the gifts because I got all this stuff that I'm going to need you to do. And I especially need you the one to build up the church. And the reason was because Paul was out there planting churches right and left and making disciples. God has called us to this ministry and we're all to take part. How many of you know, and we all love this verse, and I used to be a part of the discipleship movement in the 70s, so... Most of you, some of you weren't even here then, but back then we used to, we were into the five-fold ministry, man. 
you know, you had to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. And that was the five-fold ministry. And it was all about finding who you were and how you fit in the five-fold ministry and who you submitted to and who you led and all this kind of stuff. What's so funny is, is I didn't realize until probably 30 or 40 years later, is the verse keeps saying, keeps going. And it said, God gave the church these offices for the equipping of the saints. I'm not done for the work of the ministry. We think, oh, the apostles, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, he's in the ministry. Well, he's in the ministry preparing you for the ministry. That's what the verse actually says. It's not he's the pastor and you're some other creature. No, this disciple is serving in the capacity of a pastor so he can make disciples out of you and equip you to do the work of the ministry. You're in the ministry. If you don't realize it, that's okay, but let's fix it now. If God has called you to be a disciple, if you've been born again, if you've been born of the Spirit and born of the water, then God, your people go, oh, I wonder what God's plan is for you. I don't know what you're wondering about. He called men to be disciples, and that's all he called them to be, almost the Christians barely even in the New Testament. In fact, Peter mentions it one time, and, and, uh, and Luke and Acts mentions it one time. He makes a comment, yeah, over here in this town, they started calling us Christians. What's that all about? Because basically, you were either brother or sister, which our relationship with each other, or you were called to be a disciple. That's all it is. That's what they call them. You know, we would refer to our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters and parts of this body. But, man, you, let me say something again that I already said once before. If you're not a disciple, you're something God never called men to be and never sent men out to make. I don't know what you are. You think you're a school teacher? All I can tell you is this. You know what I found out about me? I thought I was an entrepreneur, a publisher. I thought I was a... a uh, successful business person. I thought I was all these different things. And what I came to find out was all I really need was, was some kind of profession or job to fund what God had called me to do. Do you know when I sat, sat there at that light with that Porsche and, and began to weep before God and realized I had built my whole life around the American dream and wasn't doing what God called me to do, I realized that I had not just changed but I had exchanged. See, I exchanged the American dream for the kingdom dream. I exchanged my values that I had held before as an American. You know, God and country and, and, and being successful was, you know, you make a lot of money, you have a nice house, and you do other things. That's the definition of success. Well, it's not in the kingdom of God, my dear friend. Our master washed feet. A guy asked, I, I was reading a book by a guy the other day, and he made the comment about what, what would a, a guy ask him, what would, you, what would epitomize Christianity? If you're going to put a Christian flag up, of course, you know, everybody says a cross, and who could deny that? Uh, uh, I heard a lot of people say, you know, really, it needs to be the, the empty tomb. I mean, that was the proof of everything, you know. Then, uh, but this guy said, he said, it would be a water basin. And he talked about how that in the, Jesus said that in the world, you know, the Gentiles would lord it over, and the Romans would lord it over, and the Jewish leaders lord it over on other people. But Jesus said, it's not going to be that way with you. 
that in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you got to be the slave of all. So it's a, our kingdom is an upside-down kingdom to the world. So I sat there, and I wept at the light, and I left that place, and I realized I could not be a successful disciple-maker the way I had structured my life. Everything in my life had been structured to, the, to pursue and be successful in the American dream. So I know this sounds crazy, but do you know what I did? I blew my life up. I had to blow it up and start all over again. It was so fundamentally structured around all the wrong things that I had to blow it up and build it again. So I, I got rid of the portion. I got the biggest grocery haul in Lincoln Continental I could find. I could put 30 bags of groceries in the back. You know, they always joke about the old Lincolns. You know, you, they said the mob could put eight bodies in the back. It's true. It's true. I mean, you put 30, 40 bags of groceries. You can load it up with disciples. You can load it up with widows, and you can haul people anywhere you need to go because, you know, most of my guys in Frazier, they couldn't keep a car running for two days, and so I became the neighborhood bus, and, and uh, you know, we went out and started mowing our own yards and mowing other people's yards, and we started taking care of the widows in the area and leading people to the Lord and discipling people and going and talking to our neighbors, and we began to do work like that until the time that I wound up going over into Africa. That's what I did when I was here in Memphis. One thing I want to tell you before I move on from this subject matter is, is that I hope I've made the point that you're a disciple, you're, and I want you to self-identify that, not as what you've been taught most of your life. The second thing I would want to tell you as far as coming from the American dream angle is that uh, we have got to uh, begin to engage other people with the kingdom of God and with the message of Christ. Uh, one of the things that I personally found was is I could not fundamentally do that the way I had structured my life. I had to restructure my life so I could obey Jesus. You know, a lot of times we want to keep going the same road. We just want to stick a, you know, it's, it's like we want to drive this vehicle. Let's just stick a Jesus bumper sticker on it. And I'm still going to go my own way, do my own thing. But, hey, man, did you see my bumper sticker? I'm a Christian. Yeah, I am. And I mean, it's, it's just the same thing you did for you, say. You act the same way. You live the same way. Oh, you cleaned up a few things. You don't drink or get high anymore. But, you know, basically to the, to the average lost person, you, you just got a bumper sticker. I mean, unless they came to church and see you. But Jesus said, let your work so shine that men will look and see your life and glorify God. That's not a normal life. You can't do that unless you change something. If men and women today are looking at your life and saying, oh, my God. Praise God for her. Look what she's doing. If they're not doing it now, they're probably not going to do it later if you keep doing things the same way. We've all heard the story. Definition of insanity is do the same thing over and over again, but we expect a different result. So I realized I had to blow my life up and start over again, and I literally got rid of everything. All my friends and family thought I was nuts, and, and some of them hated me and, and got angry at me. They all got over it. They all loved me. And, uh, but, but, you know, so I went through this very difficult stage in my life, which was like dying. And, uh, and I went to work in, in kind of a menial job, uh, for a brother that, that was going to church here. And, uh, I just, uh, ran deliveries for him. 
And, uh, but with the understanding that I would only work 40 hours a week and that I could also go out and share and disciple these men I was working with and the understanding by then I knew I was going to go to Africa and everything. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you guys. One thing I tell people that are always wanting to, I, I get contacted by young people all the time saying, Glenn, I, I, I want to be a missionary. What kind of advice are you going to give me? And I says, uh, are you making disciples in America? Well, no, I'm getting ready to come to Africa. I said, if you can't do it there, you can't do it here. You know, in America, you speak the language. I had to learn Swahili. In America, you grew up in the culture, man. I had to learn all kinds of things. You are perfectly suited for this culture. You know, one of the biggest goals in missionary work is they want you to go and lead the indigenous people to the Lord so that they begin to make disciples, and they're the leader in the ministry because they say they understand the culture. They understand the language. It's their heart language, and it's so important you get them involved in the ministry and expand the kingdom of God, and we say that while we sit here, and we're the only person that hold those unique qualifications right here where you sit. You are the most knowledgeable person in South Haven about living in South Haven. You are the most knowledgeable person about Horn Lake that there is on the whole planet. You are the most perfectly suited person to actually take the gospel of Jesus Christ here that there is. Man, it's hard work going to another culture, learning another language, and trying to lead people to the Lord. You guys have got it made, but you got to do it here before you can do it anywhere else. And so anyway, I just wanted to share some of those things with you before I even get started today and tell you anything much about what we do in Africa. I went to Africa. I've been there now for almost nine years, uh, coming this August. Um, I went there with a very unique model. Our, uh, our model for going to Africa is probably something you never heard of. We believe that God, uh, in what we call vulnerable missions. In other words, we don't go because we got all the answers and we're going to fix Africa. We go, and, and the idea is to go with humility, and we go there to learn how you can serve. And so I knew I wanted to make disciples, and I knew I was going to plant house churches. And, uh, but my plan was to go poor, to reach the poor by living poor among the poor. So I actually lived in, with the, in, the, in the slum areas of Africa when I went there. I actually lived in a radical, uh, just outside a radical Muslim area. And by immersing myself in the culture, I, I not only was able to learn the language at a quicker rate, but I also was began and, and to learn how to understand the culture as well. By not taking a bunch of money and resources with me, it also removed the opportunity for those around me to view me as a human ATM machine. Because if you come from the West and you go to any of the developing countries in the world, then, you know, the first thing they think is, man, if I can get in with this old boy, it'll be like going to the ATM. All I, of course, I don't know what an ATM is. But anyway, they, 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 it'll be like I'll be rich and, and all my problems will go away. And you have to deal with that. So when you go over there with all these great resources, you know, and you got your money and you got your your movie projector, and you got all the things that we have here in this Western culture, and you go over there with all of that, you, you create a couple of problems. First of all, you just walked into the stereotype that this guy's Bill Gates, and, and all I got to do is get become Bill Gates' friends, and all my 
my problems will go away. That's, that, that's one of the problems that we have there. The second big problem that you have there is, is that when we take all our accoutrements and uh, uh, things that we're very comfortable with and we know aren't are normal, you know, we got our organ, we got our lights, we got our projectors and all the things we have. When we go to Africa and then let's say we do a big revival and so we bring in the big choirs and we bring in the big lights and we do all the advertising, we build a big stage and we put on a great production and then all these people come down and go to the Lord and then we're trying to make disciples. The only problem is, is that when you leave, they don't have a stage. They don't have a light show and they don't have musical instruments and they don't have a way to invite bands from all over the country and a fancy speaker and so what you've done is you've demonstrated and modeled a way of expanding the gospel that takes hundreds of thousands of dollars we don't have that and so what we did in in vulnerable missions is we had to decide what is the best way to spread the gospel and we're in luck because it was this guy named jesus that decided to come and show us how to make disciples and so what he did was is he took men and women they watched him do do his ministry and after they watched a while then he sent them out two by two and, and laid hands on them and told them that he gave them the gift and the power to go out and also heal the sick and share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of god in fact he commanded them to go heal the sick when they went out and so jesus sent them out and not only he sent them out but when he sent them out he says when you when i send you out after you get out there, I'm going to come along behind you. It's really important because, man, disciples mess stuff up. I'm telling you, you can make a mess. And so you need to go along behind them. That's the reason Jesus says he went behind. In all the villages they went to, he went behind them. I, I've been there, done that. Let me tell you something. Disciples aren't perfect people. You know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I have a lot of people say, man, I, I want to get back to apostolic Christianity. You know, apostolic Christianity, you know, the apostles planted these churches and there's this there's this idea that these churches were perfect and and, you know, everything went great. And, you know, and and all there there was this incredible unity and and everything was perfect and everybody was mature and and all these great things. And I started laughing. He goes, he goes, well, what's so funny? I said, you want to go back to apostolic Christianity? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so uh, you ever read first Corinthians? And he goes, well, of course I had. And I says, well, you know, they, they had a guy there was sleeping with his dad's wife, right? He goes, well, yeah. I said, they were getting drunk at communion. Remember? Yeah. I said, you know, there was a whole bunch of things going on there. One of them thought, oh, I'm going to follow after this pastor. No, I'm going to follow Peter. No, 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 man. I just follow Jesus. I don't need no leaders, you know. Everybody had a different idea of this stuff that was going on. You had Judaizers trying to get people to follow the law. And I told him, I said, I want to remind you of something. Paul planted that church. I think it was an apostolic church. Man, I'm going to tell you something. Discipleship is messy. Oh, it's easy to preach a sermon, see everybody on Sunday morning, and they leave. Man, you start doing life together and leading people to the Lord. You know why Paul's church was so messy? Man, he had a bunch of former idol worshipers, homosexuals, prostitutes. He was going out leading people to Jesus. Man, I go around. Uh, how many of you here may know what an Anabaptist is? Y'all know what an Anabaptist is, anybody? They're kind of like the Mennonites. You know, Mennonite Amish types, they're, 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 they tend to kind of seclude to themselves. They, they believe in the little adherence of scriptures, it, it's particularly as it uh, pertains to the Sermon on the Mount. So you might know them as those people that turn the other cheek and they, 
and, and they get told they're non-resistant and they, and they dress real plain because they don't want to be of the world and that kind of thing. Anyway, there's been a real, God's been really pouring out his spirit among these communities. And because I also share a lot of those beliefs with them as far as little adherence to the Sermon on the Mount and also practice turning the other cheek and things like this, I'm welcome into their community a lot of times. In fact, I would tell you that probably 75% of the time I speak, I actually speak in that type of Christianity because those people realize that even though they're so studious in obeying all the commands of Jesus, that they're disobeying the Great Commission and that they're not making disciples. And so they say, Glenn, we know you believe like us. Would you come teach us how to believe like us and, and how to, we've forgotten how to, Lead people to the Lord. I mean, the, there's communities like Selmer, Tennessee. I literally had a pastor come to me over there, and he told me, he says, Glenn, we don't remember anybody that remembers anybody that led anybody to the Lord. We have 30,000 people in our community, and it's because we all have eight and ten kids. And it's been that way for four generations. I believe the Mennonites could just about take over the world by just multiplying if they could just keep 100% of their people. Because they, I, I joke, I said, man, you guys are like rabbits. I said, you guys multiply probably more than a lot of people going out of evangelism just because they, they, they have so many children and they're so faithful and wonderful parents in raising them in the way of the Lord. I mean, they're really good at it. In fact, a lot of homeschool books, you may not realize this, those of you that may homeschool, all come from the Mennonite community because they're so committed to it and so founded in the Word of God. Great resources. They're wonderful people. But anyway, they invite me all the time to go around and share my faith with them because they've forgotten they don't, their grandparents or their great-grandparents may remember somebody that led somebody to Jesus. And so it's so important for us, uh, as I go around and speak, I get invited into those communities to come and, and share and teach people how to lead people to Jesus Christ. So anyway, so uh, I was over in Africa uh, 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 trying to uh, reach these different cultures and everything for Christ. And so I go in such, such a way to where uh, we're going there without all the answers. We're going there and we live just like the people we serve. For example, uh, I got invited to come up in the northern part of Tanzania. Our country is 30% Muslim, 30% absolute pagan. That means we worship ancestral spirits, uh, witch doctors, trees, volcanoes, whatever. And then uh, also, uh, and then the other third is whatever you want to identify as anything Christian. That would be... Uh, from um, some of the older denominations like uh, Lutheran or Methodist and Baptist, although there's almost no Methodist. Uh, but anyway, some of the traditional denominations, uh, the, some of the earliest churches there were Pentecostal. Uh, and uh, so that would be however you identify those. But the vast majority of those churches view their success by how big their building is and how much they look like a Western church. They, they just want to be like a Western church. So everybody wants to try. And you, their goal in life is to 
you know, be a Christian, and, and, but as a pastor and a leader, they want a building that looks like a Western church building, and they want to dress in a Western suit because they watch a Western TV, and the successful Western pastor is the guy behind the big pulpit on Sunday morning preaching to 15,000 people. So it's all about that. It's not about going to the lost. It's not about leading people to the Lord. It's about kind of, you know, you, you're just trying to grow this church. That's what it's really all about. They stay away from the Muslim community because there's conflict there. And so anyway, so that's kind of where I find myself is these three groups. And so what we do is we go in and, of course, we go straight at the culture that we live in. But what we do is we want to we, we're not trying to uh, to practice Western Christianity. What we're trying to do is practice uh, the same type of uh, discipleship that Jesus uh, practiced. You know, Jesus literally came down from heaven took on the form of a man, and then humbled himself even more to the point of death. But So Jesus came and lived and worked among us in order to reach us. So what we do is I go in, and, and once again, I'm not going there as the rich American. So what I do is uh, my sending church literally uh, sends me with $500 a month. Uh, every year they ask me if I need a raise, and every year I've told them no because the dollar to Tanzanian shilling rate has changed so much that actually it's like I got a 40% raise by now. I keep going up and going up because of the way the exchange rate has been since I've been in Africa. So what I do is I go without resources, and, and what I, for the first four months that I was there, I lived in a goat stall with a family. We put cardboard up so the wind couldn't blow through the... Uh, the slats in the wall, and then we had two little doors, uh, just old, you know, three-board doors with a door handle on there. And uh, they lived on one side, and then we had a, uh, uh, some cardboard put up in between us because the husband, wife, and three kids were in that double bed. And then I slept on a child's single bed with one to three people, depending on whether we had guests, because that's the way we do it in Africa. And so that's the way I lived for the first four months I was there. But by doing that, is I, everybody realized a couple of things. This, this crazy American, he ain't got no money. He wouldn't be living like this. So that was good. You know, nobody came after me because they thought I had money because nobody in the right mind, as far as they were concerned, would live this way. Mission accomplished. Uh, second thing was, is because I really didn't have any money. I, I mean, I, I had enough to live on, but I, and I could bless somebody. You know, I could help other people. But obviously, I couldn't do anything extravagant. I mean, you know, we can, we can, we can get it. We can get you fed, and we can get some clothes on you, and we can get some medicine, or we can bandage you up, or something. But I couldn't fix anybody's big problems in life. I can't send your kids to school. I can't get you that operation you want. You know, I can't build you a house. I can't do any of those things. That was perfect. And then I got there, and I was immersed in this culture, and I began to train people, and we would go out together, and of course. It was, there was churches everywhere in this little village I was in, but all they were doing was going to each other's church members and trying to steal all the affluent Christians. Seriously, I, I was in a lady's house, and her husband happened to be the, um, the kind of what we call the park ranger over a national park. Well, that was a huge, big-paying job. I mean, that would basically make him one of the wealthiest guys in the area, even though he just looked like he was a simple park ranger outfit. And I literally, she invited me to come over. She was having trouble with bitterness, and she couldn't forgive someone. Her husband had had an affair, and she was just furious at him and, and just hateful and had lost all her peace. And so I, we were, one of my guys had been counseling her about forgiveness and, um, and, uh, and restoration with her husband. So she wanted to talk to me, and I went over there. When I walked, this guy in a suit come out, and 
And, uh, and I, it was a guy behind me, another suit coming. And so she let me in. She held her hand up for that guy to stay outside. And I said, what, what, what's the deal here? And she said, every pastor in the area comes by here almost every day. They want money. They want us to join. They want us to switch the church. You know, she said, they wear us out all the time. And I find out if you're wealthy and affluent, you had to hide from these guys because all they were trying to do was build their little fiefed them up and uh, it was a very very sad state of affairs now they're surrounded by pagans that don't know jesus they're surrounded by muslims that don't know jesus and they're worried about getting somebody in that's going to tithe because that's how you put a new roof on the building and everybody knows you got to have a new roof on your building or you're not a successful pastor that's their definition so anyway so uh we began to do things differently so i purposefully stayed away from anybody remote remotely related to the church because Man, I, I, don't, I don't want to get involved in this game. These guys are, you know, cannibalizing each other's church. And, of course, you know what that means. There's people gossiping about the other church and the other pastor. Oh, it's just a nightmare. So, anyway, we go to the illegal alcohol brewers, which are a rough lot. You know, everybody's got a patch over an eye and a limb missing because the only time these guys get drunk, they fight with machetes. And so everybody's all chopped up. And uh, we look like something out of, what was that movie, um, um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, have all these characters, you know, har, 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 and they got the hooks and everything. We got all that, including the peg leg and the whole thing. You just, that's the way it is. And so that's who we went after. And while we were doing that in those poor areas, we were just going out talking about Jesus, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, calling men to repentance. But we called men not to get saved so they can go to heaven. We called them to give up everything and come and follow Jesus. We're not trying to give people a ticket to heaven. We're trying to make disciples. So the message is different when you're trying to give them a ticket to heaven than it is you make a disciple. Well, you say, how is it different? And I said, well, what did Jesus say? One day he was walking along, big crowd following him. He goes, oh, you want to follow? Okay. You're going to need to hate your mother, father, sister, brother. Give up all that you possess. Take up your cross and come and follow me if you want to be my disciple. Any takers? That didn't get him enough, so then he offended them by saying some other things and ran the rest of them off, and he, and he went on and with the men that he was discipling. My dad was, uh, uh, was talking to me the other day, and he says, man, there's just something I don't understand about Jesus. And I says, well, what's that? And he said, why in the world did Jesus not teach everybody like he taught the apostles? In fact, he even says he used parables so they wouldn't understand. But he talked and taught his apostles. Why didn't he just go ahead and tell everybody? And I said, Dad, the lost need to hear one thing. Repent, be baptized, surrender everything, and come and follow me. That was his message. If you didn't repent, and surrender, and come and follow Jesus, there ain't no sense in need treating you anything else. If you don't come in the door, you can't be part of the fold. You can't jump over the fence. you got to repent. So when we go out to the lost, we've got to call them to give up everything, to turn away from sin, to turn away from self, to turn away from the world, and that means turning away from Satan, and they don't even know they're, they're an enslaved to him. So this is the call we were given in order to have people come. Now, listen, it's a whole lot easier passing out tickets to heaven. It's a whole lot easier to say, how would you like to know if you died today that you'd go to heaven? Well, who wouldn't? I said, all you got to do is pray this prayer. And so we got the sinner's prayer gospel. 
you know, where they, they go, okay, I say this. Now, what do I say, Nate? Okay, I say, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. I can say that. And, you, and then say, Jesus, come in my heart. I can say that. I can say all these things. Woo-woo. So I repeat after you, where's my ticket? I'm going to heaven. What did I say when I almost got started? Things Jesus never said. Pray this prayer after me and you'll go to heaven. That's something Jesus never said. Instead, he said, give up everything and come and follow me. That's what Jesus said. So if you wonder, and I, I had some pastors tell me one time, he said, Glenn, we just can't get people committed in church. He says, you know, if it rains, they can't come. Now, they can go to the football game and they can go deer hunting. In unbelievable conditions. In fact, they have special equipment so that in unbelievable conditions, they can go to football games and then go duck hunting and deer hunting. How many of you know that's the truth? Man, they can do it. But man, oh, I think it, I thought I saw a snowflake. I can't go to church. <laughs> oh, and I'm, we're going to stay home. We'll watch. We're online now anyway. We'll just watch it. You know, it's all good. And that's what we do. And he's like, why are people like that? And I said, well, you know, maybe the foundation you laid is a little different than the one Jesus laid. Well, what do you mean by that? And I says, well, you know, in the early church, they'd rather be burned alive than deny Jesus. There's a great writing by a guy, and his name is uh, uh, Justin Martyr. And he wrote a book. It wasn't really a book. It was this letter. And it was called, We Don't Say Great Things, We Do Them. And he, the Romans were saying, you guys need to get in the military and y'all need to get involved in all this stuff like us. And, and uh, the, you know, the Roman, you know, legions are true bravery. And this is what being a true man's about. And, and, and these men are great. And the greatness of the Roman empires and all their soldiers. And he was telling him all this stuff. And, they, and uh, Justin Martyr kind of wrote him back and he kind of laughed. He says, so let me get this straight. So you take 100,000 men with shields and highly trained, and they got their shin guards, and they got their helmets, and they got their sword, and they got their, they, they got catapults, and they, and they got wild animals, and they got horses, and they got chariots, and you go out, and you fight in a battle against undermatched people, and you slaughter them, and you, and you say you're brave. He says, he kind of laughs in his letter, and he said, I got nine-year-old little girls that came to know Jesus, and they stand in the Colosseum as the crowds surround them, crying for their blood. The animals are sick on them. They're torn limb from limb. All they have to do to be set free is say, Caesar's Lord. That's all they have to do. They have to worship no idol. They don't have to do anything. And he said, we got nine-year-old little girls. It says, send the animals. There's a famous story of a, uh, one of the earliest martyrs that we have any writings about after the apostles' time. His name's Polycarp. You can Google it if you want to. Polycarp was an old man, and would, the Romans were trying to kill him, and they were persecuting him and driving him village to village to village. And, and, they, and he finally realized that when he'd stay at someone's house before he'd run the next village because he was an old man, that when the Romans came and found out he stayed there, they were killing the family. He said, man, I, I can't keep running because my brothers and sisters are getting killed. So when they showed up the next village, he goes, here I am, here I am. I'm the guy you're looking for. So they take him to the big Colosseum, you know, which is like they, we call it the circus or the Colosseum. It's just a you know, around the area where they did the gladiators and they, they did the horse racing and the whole nine yards back then. So anyway, so they get Polycarp up there and they say, okay, old man, here's the deal. He said, uh, we just need you to say Caesar's Lord and uh, you can go. It's all good. Now, you got to understand something about Polycarp. Polycarp had been discipled by Arrhenius, 
who had been discipled and appointed by John the Apostle. So this guy's like right up next to it. In fact, as a little boy, he had, John the, the Apostle had spoken in his village, and, and, and we have writings where he, he saw John. He, evidently, John was riding a horse at this point, which was kind of surprising for a lot of us. You know, we have this image of walking with the sandals. He, he was actually on a horse. I think he was already quite old, and it was easier to get around on a horse, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Polycarp's there, and they said, if you'll just say Caesar's Lord, we're going to let you go. And Polycarp goes, uh, you know, I've lived my life since a little boy following Jesus. Why do I wait right here to the end and, and say I'm, that Caesar's Lord when Jesus is Lord? He says, I'm not going to say it. And they said, you don't understand. If you don't say it, we're going to sick the wild animals on you. They're going to tear you limb from limb. And he says, uh, you don't understand. I already gave you my answer. So, you know, I'm old. I'm tired. So if you're going to send the animals out, can we get on with it? I'm an old man. You're wasting my time. And he goes, oh, you're not afraid of the animals, huh? I said, we're going to tie you to wood, and we're going to set you on fire. And he goes, okay, then let's go ahead and do it. And he says, man, you're going to burn. You're going to fry. And he says, I'm pretending, you know, they didn't have a watch. But Polycarp looks around, and he goes, are we going to stand here and talk all day, or are you guys going to kill me? I'm not going to deny Jesus. He who has been faithful to me all my life, how can I be faithless to him at the end? I don't get it. And so, man, they went on threatening me. Even the crowd was like, man, are we really going to burn this old man? I mean, how is he a danger to the Roman Empire? I mean, come on. You know, a little frail little guy. He's of no significance in the world. And he stood up against him. And finally they did. They put green wood. Couldn't get him to burn. They wound up pouring a bunch of oil on him. They lit him on fire, and he still wouldn't burn good, so they finally wound up stabbing him and killing him. But he was a really hard old bird to kill. But this guy had been faithful, and so I had pastors tell me one time, he said, how come these guys, and you read about the early church, they die like this, and I can't get people to come to church when it's raining outside. And I said, well, maybe because of what you're calling them to be and calling them to come and do. You're calling them to get their ticket to heaven. They got their ticket punch, baby. I'm going to heaven. It's raining. I hope to get wet. Because that's their view of Christianity is all about them getting to heaven. Jesus called men to come and suffer for the kingdom of God. He called men to come and give up everything and to be disciples. A disciple is like his master. And his master gave everything to ransom us from sin, self, Satan, and the world. And I'm going to tell you something. God has called you. To be like a ransom for everyone around you. God wants you to give up your life for the life of those around you. He wants you to live such a life that those around you will glorify God. I saw a guy made a quote the other day on Facebook, and I, most things on Facebook are absolute bunk, but this thing, this guy made a comment. They said, Your life should be living proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And I go, Now, wait a minute. And I began to ask myself, man, do people, can they look at me and they say, man, do you see what this guy's doing? Do you see how he lives for Jesus? Do you see how he loves others? Do you see how this church loves one another, cares for one another? Just see what they're doing and see what they're all about. I don't know, but I'm starting to think when I look at them, maybe Jesus did raise from the dead. Maybe it's real. How could it not be if people would live that way? God didn't mean for you to fit into the American dream. 
Man, God's got something better for you. I have lived in Africa for nine years now. I've been chased by elephants, charged by baboons. I've had uh, Somali Muslims surround me and want to beat me up. God delivered me every time, by the way. Did get cold cocked one time, I think. Do you know when you get cold cocked in a big crowd of people, you're not even sure if you got cold cocked. I mean, maybe somebody with a two before this accidentally almost knocked my head off because I was the crowd was so thick, you know, I couldn't fall. And all of a sudden, I'm like, bang. And I'm like, what just happened? I, try, I can't see nobody. But I just got clobbered. So I don't know. I tell people sometimes I got cold cocked, but I want to tell you today, something happened. While I was in this radical neighborhood where everybody, you know, I was a little different than everybody else there. I think I got punched, but, you know, maybe not. Maybe not. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, I've been through all of these different circumstances and everything. I never got trained to lead Muslims to Christ. And you know what? I'm not into apologetics. I, I, I don't spend all my time trying to learn the perfect way because i got to answer all the Muslim questions. You know what I do? I know this sounds crazy, but I tell them about Jesus. And the good news of the kingdom of God. I have friends that that that, that they're fantastic at apologetics and, and arguing and debating with Muslims. That's not me. But I can tell you this, 30% of every single disciple that I've made in Africa come from Islam. I don't spend my time trying to debate. I don't spend my time trying to convince them. I don't spend my time trying to explain the Trinity and all these things. This is what I say. I tell them about Jesus. I call them to give up everything to come and follow him. And I tell them that the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven, is our final destiny. And at that point, all things will be healed and made right. And that God has called us and given us a promise of this kingdom and that they can enter in and have it. They can be set free from sin, self, Satan, and the world and come and follow Jesus. And what's so crazy about it is, as simple as my message is, and it's unspecial as my message is in being targeted as, at Muslims, is that you wouldn't believe the number of Muslims. I'm going to say the first three or four Muslims I ever led to the Lord, you know what, they all told me the same thing. I've been praying for years that somebody would tell me about Jesus. Say, so, oh, I heard him singing in the building. I, I, I've noticed that Christians uh, love each other. I've heard them praising God. I even heard that God answers prayers when Christians pray. I knew all these things, but I never knew how to be a Christian. And she said, I'm so excited someone came. I've been praying for years for somebody to tell me how to become Christian. I felt you ever hear the uh, the old saying, "You picking low hanging fruit." Here I was in Tanzania that got a got a strong church president. A third of the countries is are Christians and everything. A third are Muslim, third are pagan, and there's so many people in the Muslim community ready to be plucked, but no one will tell them about Jesus. The Bible says the problem is not with the field. It's we don't have any workers. It's true in America. It's true in Africa. We don't have enough workers. And so I want to challenge you today, guys, to join in and, uh, and to become a worker in the kingdom of God. I'm going to wrap myself up here because I'll, I'll get going on another topic, and it'll be real long. You don't want that. <laughs> but I, I did want to just give you just the last thing I'll say about Africa, and that, that's just that uh, 
we've been over there for nine years. We go out and we do a hard call to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches in Luke 10 to go out to people looking for the person of peace. I don't go around arguing with people that, that are agnostic. I don't go around fighting with people that want to argue for Islam. The Bible says you're looking for a person of peace. And, and then it defines this person really almost accidentally. I mean, it doesn't say, well, oh, by the way, let me give you the definition of a person of peace. It says, and when you find them, you stay in their home. You eat their food. In fact, it says you don't go to any more houses. You stay there. You know, as a Southern Baptist, we like to count our scalps. You know, I'm going to get this guy saved and then go get this guy saved and go get this guy. I'm just scalping everybody and I got my belt. And look at all these people I led to the Lord. Well, in Jesus, he told his guys that you're going to go. And once you find somebody who wants to hear what you got to say and they're open to the message and they're welcoming to you to come and talk to them. Don't move. That's what I sent you out for. You have found what I've sent you out for. So it's, it's kind of exciting because for you guys, uh, instead of going out and having to argue with somebody or still having to go out and stand on the street, street corner and scream at people that aren't interested, your job is to go out and find somebody that goes, you know, it's funny you ask. Sure, I'd like to hear about that. In other words, Jesus said look for the person of peace, not the person to argue with. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees who fought Jesus tooth and nail, they came to find him because he wasn't running around looking for them, with the exception of clearing the temple, of course. That's another topic. But so anyway, I just wanted to tell you guys and kind of close today with uh, I wanted to read you a parable or, or rather review a parable because you know this one like the back of your hand, as it were. It's actually two parables, and it's a parable about you. It's your parable. It's specifically about you. In both of these parables, one in Matthew 25 and the other one in Luke 19, Jesus was getting ready to, to get to Jerusalem. And in one of them, he says, now, since he was going there, everybody thought the kingdom's going to come right now. How many of you got friends? Jesus is going to come tomorrow. How many? Jesus coming tomorrow. Things are so bad, he's going to come tomorrow. Well, Jesus had the same thing. He heading to Jerusalem. Woo, this is it. Man, he's fixing to take over the government, and we're going to run the Romans out. Woo-woo, kingdom of God's here. And Jesus knew they were thinking that. And so Jesus said, in Matthew, he literally says, uh, and by the way, this is called the parable of the talents and parable of the minus. I'm going to change the name for you, for you, and we're going to say this is the parable about you. So I want you to remember this when you go when you get home tonight and you decide you're going to read your Bible tonight. I'm going to challenge you guys to open up your Bible and read about you. This is your story, and I'm going to kind of combine these two stories if y'all don't mind. In one of the stories, he talks about a man that's going to go on a journey, and he just has his servants come together, gives them all his possessions. He gives one five talents, one two, and he gives the other guy one talent. And, uh, and he went on a journey, and immediately some of these people went out and, 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 and went to work with the master's uh, uh, resources that he gave us. And, uh, and, then, and then it says, basically, the, uh, uh, the master returned and settled accounts with his servants. It's a pretty simple story. Getting down in verse 21, though, in, Luke, uh, in Matthew 25, 
uh, he brings his servants up, and the one that had five talents, he said, well, done. you were faithful over a few things. I'm going to put you over many. The guy with two talents did the same thing, and Jesus said, ooh, well done. I'm going to give you a bunch of responsibility. And then to the guy that didn't use his talent at all, the Scripture verse in Matthew 25 says, you wicked, lazy servant. He didn't say, oh, well, thanks for trying. He's wicked and lazy serpent, a servant. And then he says at the end of this parable, throw this good for nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These were all servants of the leader. They all belonged to Christ. If you doubt it, you can keep on reading about the sheeps and the goats. You'll find there that Jesus divides up two kinds of people. Believe it or not, both these people are followers of Jesus. My Southern Baptist friends like to say, oh, these old here, they were false prophets and deceivers. And then these people over here were true Christians because, you know, they believe in the once saved, always saved thing. And so, and I said, well, the only problem with that is, is he doesn't call them deceivers. He doesn't call them deceived or false prophets. They're over there and they say, hey, Jesus. We preach the gospel. We heal the sick. We cast out demons in your name. These guys are using the name of Jesus, and there's results coming from their life. And Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know who you are, you lawless ones. Oh, they look like good Christians on the outside. And you know what? I believe they were praying. I believe they were, they were, they were uh, people that you and I might look at and say, Woo, he's a great Christian but they would not follow the teachings and commands of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, oh, you're a false prophet. Ah, oh, you're a lawless one. And the difference is, is the way they treated their brothers and sisters. In one group, they clothed the naked. They fed the hungry. They gave water to the thirsty. They visited the persons in prison uh, uh, and all these things. And in the other group, they didn't. And the ones that didn't, he called them lawless ones. Because Jesus says the way we live our life among the people around us is exactly the way we feel about God. It's the craziest thing Jesus ever said, actually. The way I treat you, Jesus said, oh, oh you don't understand. That's, that's, you're treating me that way. How Jesus could make such an association is just mind-boggling to us. It defies all theology. It defies all description. It's the most baffling thing that he could ever say. But Jesus said it just the same. In fact, Jesus went so far that the only conclusion we can come is that the broken, the disenfranchised, the poor, the hungry, all of them in some way to you and me are supposed to be like Jesus in disguise. I tell a story about a homeless guy I used to work with, and I, I, I tell the story in a funny way because, you know, I used to write a little bit so I could tell a story pretty good. And I, and I was out jogging one day in Overton Park, and I, I said I was jogging. I looked over on the swing sets, and I was looking. I said, I couldn't be sure. <sighs> it's Jesus. He said, I think I see Jesus over there. And so in my story that I was writing, I jogged over. And of course, this really happened in Overton Park, and I jogged over to the guy, and I walked up to him, and I and I saw him, and I said, sure enough, there he was, Jesus. I said, no, he was in disguise, of course. He had broken glasses with tape on him. His name was Walter. He stunk to high heavens. I know he'd been drunk because I had shared with Walter before. 
and he was really dirty. And so I went over and I talked to Jesus and I told him that I loved him and I asked what I could do for him. And he says, you know, I'd really like a haircut. I said, are you hungry? And he said, I am. I said, I got apples and water in my car. So I said, I'm going to finish my run. My car's over here. I'll meet you over there in 30 minutes. I come back and sure enough, Jesus was sitting right by my car. And so we drank water together, shared with him the love of God, tried to figure out how to help him. He didn't want any help. And we turned around, and I said, is there anything else I can do for you, Walter? And he says, man, it's sure like a haircut. I said, can do. So Walter gets in the car, and we drove over, and, you know, I went in, and we paid the little girl to cut his hair. He was so excited to get a haircut, he hadn't had one in a long time. I could tell he hadn't had one in a long time. But anyway, the, the, the name of my story was I saw Jesus in Overton Park yesterday. Because, but, 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 but you see, Jesus says somehow, however we treat the disenfranchised among us, is how we treat him. I don't understand how Jesus could say such a thing. But I'm going to tell you, I have a clue. Let me tell you something. I have decided to treat people like that everywhere I go all the time. Or as we say in Swahili, kilawakate, kilamundo, kilisiku, every day, everywhere, and all the time. And I can tell you that when you do it, guess what people do? So I don't know anything about those people. But I want to go find out what it is they're selling. I want to find out what it is that's going on. And so that's what we do. And I'm telling you something. You can change everything around you if you're willing to live this way. And when you combine these type of good works with the gospel and with the healing touch of Jesus and with the spiritual gifts that you have in your life, it's like dynamite, man. You just blow everything loose. You just dislodge everything. Let's turn then over to Luke. His parable is a little bit different. Luke 19. I, I laughingly, you know, I, I went to Bible college at a school that was kind of basically an atheist Christian school. Do you know those schools like that? Methodist Church is full of them. And I, I went to school to be a Methodist pastor there for a minute and because, uh, uh, you know, I, I was raised Methodist. And, and so when I went, you know, they were trying to convince me that, you know, Bible wasn't true, this wasn't true, you know, they spent all this time doing it. And so uh, uh, they would try to pray the Gospels against each other. Oh, well, in Luke, you know, they had the sermon on this sermon over here. You know, Luke says this, but in Matthew, it says Jesus said this. And, you know, I didn't know how to respond to that. I was a 17-year-old Christian boy, and the apologetics, about the only, there was no Internet, but the only thing you can get for apologetics was there was a book by a guy named Josh McDaniel, and it was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it was basically rebuttals to all what the atheists had to say about the Bible. And, man, it was this thick. I was having enough trouble studying in college without having to read that thing in order to talk to my professors. But year later on in life, I came to understand something that, uh, that yeah, there was a sermon on the mountain. It's a little bit different than the sermon on the plain. And you go, well, why are they different? Well, I don't know about you. But if I preach a sermon over there and I preach a sermon over there a week or two later, it may not be exactly the same word I said over there. And why would it be? I believe Jesus had a sermon on the mountain. He had a sermon on the plain. I believe there was a sermon in the temple. I believe there was a sermon in the house. I believe there was a sermon on the river, sermon in the field. I believe there was a sermon in Samaria, a sermon in Judea. And I bet they were all different, but all of them said the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come and be my disciple. Repent and be baptized. Give up everything and come and follow me. What do I care whether or not I want to use one parable and want to use another? Man, if you, if you had to go speak uh, 50 different places and I recorded you, who in the world would get upset because you didn't say exactly the same thing you said in your last sermon? 
I mean, this is crazy. This kind of stuff, that's kind of reasons they were trying to convince us we couldn't believe the Bibles because Jesus said something different in Jericho than he said in Samaria. I'm like, who doesn't say something different? But anyway, I love the differences in this story. I believe Jesus told stories about being prepared all through the Bible, and he used all kinds of methods. How many of you remember the ten virgins and the oil? We just got through reading about the, the guys that had five talents, two talents, and one talent. And this one was a, was a landowner that went away. Whoo, what do you hear about this one? This one's really, in a lot of ways, is kind of my favorite. Because, you know, the Bible says we're going to rule and reign with him in the kingdom of God forever if we're faithful. So what I want to do is I, I want you to take a look at one here. And in this particular parable, let me get to the right one here. Man, there's so many parables here. Hmm, we got the landowner, and we got this one, we got that one. All right, here we go, Luke 19. Man, I could just stay over in Luke 25 forever. Uh, the parable, this one's the ten miners, and this one's a little different than the last one, but this one's kind of exciting. So as they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because they were getting New Jerusalem. Everybody thought, oh, the kingdom of God's going to come. So everybody's thinking, here it goes. And Jesus said, this time there's a nobleman. And he travels to a faraway uh, country to receive for himself authority to be a king. I like this one because that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, he was going to get authority to be a king. And then one day, he's going to return. And he, but before he did, he called his ten servants together and he gave every one of them ten minus. So see, this was different. Instead of three, we got ten. Instead of giving everybody a little bit, we give everybody ten minus. Those things are inconsequential, but, you know, guys build whole servants or sermons around all those little differences all the time, and you're free to do the same thing. But let's look what he says. He called his ten servants together. He gave them ten minus, and he told them, engage in business until I return. Now, Jesus went around everywhere, and he talked about the kingdom of God. His first sermon was about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist had come saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God more than everything else he talked about all put together. Over 100 times, he specifically mentions the kingdom of God. In the book of Matthew alone, if you count up the verses where he's talking specifically about the kingdom of God, it's 297 verses. He died and he rose again. The Bible says he spent the next 40 days, and guess what he talked about? He was talking about the kingdom of God. Yet most people have no idea what the kingdom of God is. I believe they can't articulate something, you don't understand it. If you can't explain it and you can't teach it, then you don't know what you're teaching about. And most of us in Christianity have no idea what the kingdom of God is. And I don't have time to go in on all of it, what I would share with you today. But I've dedicated my life to sharing about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Do you know that the Bible records in Acts that Paul said that I don't have any of you's blood on my hands because I went around and met with all of you teaching you about the kingdom of God in Jesus. It says at the end of Acts that Paul would had all these people coming into his house for two years where he persuaded them about the kingdom of God 
and Jesus. In fact, what's really surprising us, he says, kingdom of God, God first, and then Jesus. Because that's the message Jesus came and brought. So Jesus talked about it the whole time he was on earth. John the Baptist talked about it the whole time he was on Israel was looking for the kingdom of God the whole time that they were a nation. Jesus dies talking about the kingdom of God. He raised, and he's still talking about the kingdom of God. Philip, the first evangelist, goes out, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. Paul goes out, he talks about the kingdom of God 14 times in his books and mentions it 14 times in the book of Acts, yet we don't include it in our gospel presentation. So in this verse here, this story here, everybody's waiting on the kingdom of God again. Remember, this is a parable about you. So he goes on and he, he calls his ten servants. He has them engaged in business. What could that be? Well, what is the kingdom of God's business? Well, it's making disciples. It's taking the commands of Jesus and teaching to them. In fact, the, the very definition of making a disciple is you, you go out and you preach to them to repent and come and follow Jesus, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what discipleship's all about is because Jesus came and the teachings of Jesus is Jesus actually casting a new culture for a new kingdom. Jesus came and brought a new set of values. That's why he could say, you've heard it said. But I've said Moses said this but I say that well, why did Moses tell us it was okay to do this because you had a hard heart We're not doing that no more Don't be like them I got something new for you and that's what he did So the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Plain and all the commands of Jesus Jesus is casting a new culture for a new community That's a that's a, that's for a new kingdom that's going to eventually fill all the earth the Bible says there'll come a day when the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and that God will walk with man just like he did in the garden. The tree of life will be restored just like it is in the garden. The curse will be removed just like it is in the garden. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sadness. We go around telling people they're going to get a harp and they're going to sit in with clouds in, uh, in the clouds in heaven and they're going to going to strum the harp and worship Jesus. There's not a verse in the Bible that says that. That comes from Greek mythology. Jesus said there's a kingdom coming. Paul warned people. He said, there'll be no homosexuals. There'll be no thieves. There'll be no adulterers. There'll be no liars. There'll be no gospers. There'll be no drunkards. Where? In the kingdom of God. Paul says, if you're worthy, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, why is Jesus talking about the kingdom all the time? Paul says, we got to inherit the kingdom, warns you what not to do to not inherit the kingdom. And we're talking about playing harps on clouds. Where'd that come from? It's not in the Bible. I'm telling you, it came from Greek mythology. We won't go into all that. But it did. So here we are, and these people have got a kingdom theology here, and it's all wrong. And Jesus said, engage in business. I'm going to tell you, kingdom business is calling them into discipleship, making disciples, teaching them to obey all Jesus commanded them to. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. You can't make a disciple until you are one. Some of us are Christians. We're not disciples. Some of us are believers, but we're not disciples. That's a good first step. That's a good step. But we're not disciples. I want to remind you, Jesus never sent men out to make anything but disciples. And he called men to not be anything but disciples. And by men, of course, I'm saying mankind. But anyway, we go on with this story about Jesus, and we'll close with this parable. So he gets through, and he says, well done, my good, and ser uh, good servant. 
because you've been faithful in a small matter, you shall have authority over ten towns. Now, what I love about this thing, you see, Jesus is going to come and it says it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but we're going to rule and reign with him. And in this one, the nobleman goes away, he comes back a king. And man, if you do a good job, he's putting you over cities. That sounds like what Jesus was talking about in the kingdom of God. God created man and he did what? Created him in his image and gave him what? Dominion over the whole world. Dominion, man, that's, that's some royal words. That's rulership. It was Adam's job to rule and reign on the earth. People wonder, how did Satan get all the power? You know, the Bible eventually calls, Jesus says Satan is the ruler of this world. Paul said he's the God of this world. Where did he get this authority? Did God give it to him? Did God make him the God of this world? Or is Jesus and Paul wrong? Because Jesus said he's the ruler of this world. I'm going to tell you where he got it from. It was given to Adam. And Adam became a slave of Satan. And now Satan, the usurper, has assumed the role that God intended for you and me. But it's okay because God's going to destroy Satan, throw him in the pits of hell, and devil and his angels and all that follow him. And then there'll be those of you that are left that are worthy to inherit the kingdom of God, and you'll assume your rightful place, and we'll rule and reign in the heavens. And I love this parable because he says, hey, man, you did a good job. You're going to have to rule ten cities. To the other one, uh, he, did, uh, he brought back uh, five times, five minus. He gave him five cities. And then, of course, we find another guy that went and buried his in the ground. And I'm going to close by telling you this. What is a talent and what is a minor? Well, if you want to go get your commentary out, they'll tell you about measurements and all these things. Or, or if you go listen to some preachers, they're going to say, oh, your talents is whatever you're good at. No, 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 no. It was a measurement. A, a talent was a measure. It was something that, you know, it was so much wages in one parable, uh, like to so many years' wage in one parable, and the other one is so many months' wages. That's all irrelevant to parables. Jesus is trying to make it a point. Who cares what, what a minor and a talent is? Uh, this is what the real story is all about. You and I are living life here and now. Jesus is the king. He's the ruler. He's not here anymore, but he's gone and he's given you something. He's given you the time you have till he returns. And whatever resources you have, that's what you're to invest. So we've been given the time and the resources. And I'm going to tell you something. When you've got time and resources, you have an opportunity. It's your life. This story is about you. Jesus We'll come back one day. All of creation will stand before the throne of God. And according to Jesus, over and over and over again in parables, that judgment will be done to the virgins, depending on how much water's in the lamp, to the people in this story by how many minas they've generated, in another story by what they did with their talents, in another story by how they were dressed in their, uh, at the great banquet, story after story after story, in another story how they treated the least of these, their brethren. Over and over again, there's a story, and there's people that use their time, that use their resources, and the, and the king says to them, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the kingdom prepared for you at the foundation of the earth. Did you hear what I just said? The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, was prepared for you. 
at the foundation of the earth. Now, I only brought my New Testament, but if you'll open your Bible up to Genesis 1-1, it says, and God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to tell you something. The Bible starts in Genesis 1-1. That's where God created and prepared the kingdom of God for you. And for all practical purposes, it ends in in 2021 20, and 23, in, in Revelations, where it says the kingdom of God is returned to earth. The Bible begins and ends with the kingdom of God. The Messiah comes to bring the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that wherever, Jesus said, wherever I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, there's going to be a day when there's a consummation of the kingdom to when God resumes all the earth, but that's not until Satan's defeated. Until now, until then, excuse me, the kingdom of God is expanded as disciples of Jesus Christ carry out the work of God. As I cast out demons in Africa, which we do all the time, we're expanding the kingdom of God. As we cast out demons, as we heal the sick, we're rolling back the curse. The demons are thrown away. The sick are made well. See, that's what it's going to be like in the kingdom. When I feed the hungry, they're not hungry anymore. I've expanded the kingdom in their life. I've restored things the way God always meant it to be. God could snap his fingers and everybody be saved. God could snap his fingers and everybody be fed. God could snap his fingers and everybody be healed, but that's not his plan. He gave you dominion. He can snap his fingers and everything's okay. That's not God's plan. You were given dominion. You think this world's a mess? It's our fault. If we'd have followed what God had for us, it wouldn't be a mess. You don't like the political situation? Rightly so. But the solution is not a candidate. It's not a man. It's not a party. It's the kingdom of God when God's rule comes on earth. So here we are. We're out there, and we need to share the gospel. That's why you share not only the gospel of, about Jesus and what he died for, but the kingdom of God. How do we answer the problem of good and evil in the world? How can there be a good God and he allows so much evil? This is the kingdom of the world, brother. Satan's the ruler of this world system that we have here. But there's a real king, and he's in heaven. He's going to come one day and establish his kingdom. And until then, it's my job to expand the kingdom one disciple at a time everywhere I go. The Bible says that when two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in their midst. People are baffled by the verse where Jesus says, they said, where's the kingdom of God? When will it appear? And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, your Bible may say in your midst or within you, and people go, oh, the kingdom of God's in our heart. Well, it's okay if you want to have that interpretation, but just remember he was saying that to Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. He just called them vipers and snakes and said that the people they led into Judaism were worse off and sons of hell. Now, if you believe those people had the kingdom of God within them, then okay, you're welcome to believe that. I'm going to tell you where the kingdom of God was. Jesus was standing amongst them, and where Jesus is... The kingdom of God is when two or three are gathered, Jesus said, I'm here. As you guys love each other, admonish one another, encourage one another, help one another, serve one another, heal the sick, feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty. As you do all of these things, you're expanding the kingdom of God, and God's rule and reign is on earth as it is in heaven. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, what's the first thing Jesus ever told anybody to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the kingdom come, God's word will be done. As we obey Jesus and go out right now, and I love you, and I serve you, and I help you, and I heal you, and I feed you, 
God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven because I'm doing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that is our job. And when we do this, people are going to look and they're going to see and they're going to say and glorify our God who is in heaven. This parable is about you. Jesus is going to come back. And the question ultimately is, what did I do with my time and my resources? You have been given a golden opportunity. Man, I want you to start waking up in the morning. And you wake up and you go, today is my parable. I'm standing in the midst of a parable. Jesus said, Glenn Roseberry, I've left and I'm going to return. I've given you time, Glenn. I've given you resources. Now, some of you got more resources than the other. Some of you have less resources than the other. You're not accountable for what you don't have. You're accountable for what God's given you. You know, I'm only so smart. I've only got so much financial resources. I'm only so skilled. I'm only so gifted. I only have so much power and influence. It's okay. You be faithful what God's given you, and you do what God's called you to do. And then you will end the day and know that today would God say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me tell you something. I tell people all over the country when I go, what is your goal and aspiration for your kids? I want my kids to go to college. I want them to get a good job. I want them to have a good house. I want them to have a good family. I want them to have a good life. Well, those are all real sweet things. But if they stand before God and don't hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, it's an absolute waste of time. If you have any goals and any aspirations and that they are anything other than to stand before Jesus and to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the world, then I'm going to tell you something. I know you may never have been told this. You've wasted your life. You've thrown it all away. You've gained the world. And you've lost your soul if you don't hear those words. There is no other higher aspiration. You want to know what your higher aspirations are? What's your aspirations for your kids? I don't care if you buy your son a nice car and he gets a nice college education. He marries a sweet little girl, has you ten sweet little grandchildren, and, and has a good job, and all your friends respect him if he burns in hell forever. If you believe you should be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, and you know that being a disciple is somebody who would make disciples, your highest aspiration for your children is that they become a disciple of Jesus and they would make disciples. If you have a goal other than that, I'm going to tell you something. I think you need to rethink what life's all about. Because if you don't have that goal for your children, you can't just listen to me and go, ooh, that's good, I think I'm going to do it. Man, if it's not so part of you that that's what you want for your own children, it's not your goal yet. Amen. So this is a parable about you. I, I wish you'd read them. Go to bed tonight, wake up in the morning, and say, today I stand in this parable. Today I stand in this parable. I've got this time today, and I've got these resources. Now, you may be like me as you're so dead gum messed up as far as your time and resources go, and you're working 100 hours a week, and you got bunch of employees and payroll and accountants and all these things you got to do you finally realize i can't do this have me ever heard somebody say you can't get there from here i found out i couldn't get there from here i had to blow up where i was and go somewhere else and that's okay 
Because Jesus said to give up everything and come and follow him. For me, it meant blowing up my life. Now, most of you, I don't think you've messed your life up as bad as I had mine. I got so involved in the American dream, I, I really had to blow it up and start all over again. Uh, you know, for some of us, all it would mean is, is a realigning of priorities. And, and we would keep our same job and we would keep our same place of living and all this thing. For others of us, we've got to blow everything up and go to Africa. But it's not a question of, of where you do it. That's not the question. Everybody wants to know about being a missionary in Africa. You've been given a responsibility. You're a missionary in Horn Lake and South Haven. I'm going to go back over to Africa on Thursday, and I'm going to try and be faithful where God's planted me. I want you guys to be here and be faithful in what God's planted you. I want you to be in unity together, realize you're a disciple, and go out and make other disciples. We expand the kingdom of God one disciple at a time we don't have to worry about the big things just the little things one disciple if each person in this room made one led one person to Christ and discipled one person at the end of the year they could lead a person to Christ and disciple a person I'm going to tell you something you could take over South Haven in about 10 years we're all worried about the big things one person you ladies you older ladies you got friends you lead one of them to the Lord and, and teach them how to come and follow Jesus. And you go, well, I'm a theologian. I can't make a disciple. Can you, do you know how to teach people how to obey the commands of Jesus? Because that's the definition of discipleship. But remember one thing, and, and I'll sit down after I say it. You can't make a disciple till you are a disciple. Because what will happen is, is you're going to duplicate yourself. And if you're not a real disciple, you're going to duplicate something that's not what Jesus sent us out to make. So we need to be a disciple before we can make up disciples. So we need Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.